Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we'll recap the latest Giants news. We'll get into Evan Ingram and Jabril Peppers having their fifth-year options picked up by the team. We'll also, a little bit later on, recap Wednesday's conference calls with three seventh-round picks for the New York Giants in the 2020 draft class. So a lot to stay tuned for, plus we'll answer some of your submitted questions. But we start with one member of the Giants draft class as the team took Cam Brown, linebacker out of Penn State, with the 183rd overall pick in the sixth round. And we are now joined by a very special guest, the man who coached him at Penn State for the last few seasons, the head man for the Nittany Lions, the Penn State football head coach, James Franklin. Coach, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. I hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I hope uh, I hope your guys' families are doing well, and I hope everybody that's listening at home is, is healthy and and uh, getting through this situation well. Absolutely. Well, let's start with the Giants selecting Cam Brown. What are the Giants getting in the versatility that he's going to bring to the table at that linebacker position? Well, I think it starts with intelligence. You know, he's a smart guy. He's played all three linebacker positions for us, the, the Sam, the Mike, and the Will. His senior year, he played the, the, the you know, what we call our Sam linebacker, which is the field linebacker. A lot of a lot of time where the nickel nickel will line up there out, out to the field over the slot receiver, but he's played the boundary linebacker. He's played the Mike. Uh, he's smart, uh, and he's you know obviously he's unusually long for a linebacker. I mean, you're talking about a guy that measured over six foot five, you know, two hundred and thirty plus pounds. Uh, you know, I, I think he actually. I know he was disappointed with his forty time. He was expecting to run in the four sixes and, and, and didn't do that. I think, you know, at the pro day at, at Penn State, I think he would have had a chance to put up a little bit better time. But, um, you know, I, I think what you guys are seeing with our Penn State guys is they're smart, they're reliable, they know how to be pros. He's going to need to be a special teams guy as well, and he understands that. Um, so, you know, I just, I'm, I'm hoping he can come in there and do a great job for you guys and make you proud because we're very proud of him. Coach, you mentioned the versatility aspect of playing the three different linebacker positions, and it's clear that the Giants are valuing versatility very highly in this new defense under this new coaching staff. But do you suspect that that will be his role in terms of playing all over the place? Or do you think at the pro level they may try to hone in on one or two of his traits and kind of box him into something that might be more of his specialty? Yeah, I think I think what you always want to do is you want to get a guy into a position that he can call home. You know, we, we did it at Penn State, not not really in one season. It's over his four years, he played all three spots, and and we're big believers in versatility as well because we also know, you know, for these guys' future in the NFL, the more positions and the more things you can do, not just in the NFL but in any organization, the more things you can do and the more value you can bring. Um, you know, the, the better everybody's going to be, and, and obviously your opportunity to make an impact increases. So whether that is on special teams, whether that is multiple linebacker spots, 
And now he can get to the Giants, and now the Giants can plug him in where, where he brings the most value. But you know, I think you know his intelligence is what allows him to do that. Coach, you brought up his length at 6'5", 233. GM Dave Gettleman and head coach Joe Judge even said that that was one of the first traits that attracted them to Cam Brown. What is it about his length that enables you to move him around and have him do so many different things? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, the, the reason coaches like speed and the reason coaches like length is, you know, you talk about the football field, the, you know, the football field, obviously, the length of it, the 53 and a third, the, the you know, excuse me, the width of it, the 53 and a third, the length of it. What you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce space. You're trying to take away space. And you can do that with your speed and athleticism. And you can do that with size. And, and when you get a guy that has a little bit of both, then obviously it makes those throwing lanes for the quarterback more difficult. It makes your ability to, to make tackles and have a bigger uh, tackle radius no different than a receiver with a catch radius. Um, you know, so length is, is important because it takes away space from an offense. And, and, and now when you take the combination of good speed, length, and in, intelligence, because intelligence is the other thing, intelligence allows you to play fast. If, if you could be the fastest guy in the 40, but if you can't process information quickly, then you have a difficulty playing fast and, and again, taking away space. So I think that's, that's what is, a, is attractive to uh, you know, the coaches with the Giants about, about Cam, one, one of his unique qualities. It's interesting that we talk about his physical traits, Coach, because I see that he was a major in kinesiology, which is the study of body movements, and I don't usually hear that uh, about players. I wonder how much of that, uh, if at all, may have also helped him to hone and sharpen his game. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you've seen this, you know, at Penn State for a long time. We take a lot of pride in it. Um, you know, at Penn State, our guys are, are getting real majors. Our guys are, are studying challenging topics. You know, that, that mental toughness and that ability to solve problems we, we think is really important, not just in football, but for the rest of their lives. I mean, you know, our corner, you know, our corner who got drafted got at a degree in, in uh computer engineering so you know that's that's what we're all about is making sure they got we have well-rounded guys that are going to have a chance to not only bring value to the Giants organization but also the community as well I think you guys are going to really like getting to know camp you know one of the things he struggled with early on was was putting on weight he's such a long lean guy that it took him you know it took him a couple years to get over over 230 pounds, and I think he'll just continue to chip away at that. As we all realize, the three of us on this call, when you get older, for some reason, it, it becomes a little easier to put weight on. So uh, that, that's not a problem for any of us. I think so we could... can follow up on that for just a second. Not only do you talk about his uh, his ability to to take on the challenges in the classroom, but also I noticed he was voted the team captain. So that also says to me a lot about him as a, as a person in the locker room and, and relating to other people. Yeah, and and and. Can Cam was probably the leader from a standpoint of the guy that really did a good job of representing the players, but also being able to kind of sell the coach's plan and vision as well. He was a true liaison. It's, it's, I know that sounds probably obvious, but what happens a lot of times with these captains is you got captains that maybe are really strong with the players, but not as 
much with the coaches. You got some captains that align with the coaches, but it's not as much much with the players. And and Cam was a was a blend of that. He could really go into the locker room and had a strong voice with the players, but then could also have really good conversations with the coaches as well. Be a true liaison between the two uh, between the two parties and really had a unifying presence. We're talking with the head football coach at Penn State, James Franklin, as the Giants took linebacker Cam Brown in the sixth round. And related to that subject, Coach, Joe Judge, on a conference call with the media after the Giants made that pick, he called Cam an alpha dog. And he said that from talking with defensive line coach Sean Spencer, who you clearly know well, and we'll get into him in a little bit, he raved about his ability to really amp up the energy amongst he and his teammates how beneficial was that for you and the rest of the coaching staff? And how much do you think that's going to translate over to the Giants locker room, even though he's only going to be a first-year player? Well, he's a culture driver. You know, we talk about that all the time. He's a guy that, you know, is going to have meetings with the coaches and then be able to take that information down in the locker room. He plays aggressive. He plays violent. He throws his body around. Um, so yeah, I think I think he's a lot. He's what coaches are looking for, and everything I know about Coach Judge and everything I know about the organization that he came from, he's going to align with that. He he understands. You know, this is about production. It's about doing your job. It's not about all the hype. It's not about the things you say in the media. It's not about any of those things. It's about doing your job and and being a high production, low maintenance guy. I noticed that his cousin was Andre Davis, the wide receiver who played nearly 10 years in the NFL. Was there was there a closeness there? Do you think there was much influence about you know trying to become a pro based on maybe a relationship that he might have had with him? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't I can't speak on that. Um, I can tell you that he came from a phenomenal high school program at Bullis High School in Maryland. They did a great job with him coming out. Got, he's got a great family. Mom and dad are unbelievably supportive and, and did a great job raising him. So, you know, I, I think what you try to do in the draft and what you try to do in recruiting at our level is you, you look at these guys and you come up with desirable traits and qualities, and maybe there's 10 to 15 of them by position. Cam's going to be a guy that, you know, maybe is not, you know, elite in, in any one area, but he's going to have a bunch of check marks in a bunch of boxes and I think to me they're the guys that find a way to have really successful NFL careers and they're the guys that stay for a long time because they just have too many positive traits that's going to allow them to continue to be successful the guys that have one or two elite traits but then lack in other areas those guys usually end up not being overly successful Coach, you brought up that he played at the Bullis School, and I was reading, actually, Dwayne Haskins was a teammate of his, and Cam, I believe, was a wide receiver and was catching passes from Dwayne Haskins. Given his background as a wide receiver, how much did that skill set, how much of that athleticism do you think perhaps helped you mold him into eventually being a main starter coming around in 2018 and 19? Yeah, I, th I think that's that's... The same thing we talked about earlier when it comes to versatility, it's no different with us in the recruiting process. You want guys that have a lot of traits and have a lot of skills and can do a lot of different things on the football field. Guys that play both ways. We want to recruit as many DBs as we possibly can that were high school receivers and vice versa. And it's the same thing in the linebacker position. If you got guys that you know were high school running backs or tight ends or receivers that have a lot of different skills and traits that's going to be transferable to defense – 
there's there's a lot of value in that. No different than uh, uh, college coaches and NFL coaches like guys that played multiple sports in high school. Um, all those all those traits, um, you know, are exciting to develop. And then I think the other thing is. You know, you, there's still left in room. There's still room left in the tank to develop these guys. You know, the guys that have only played football and specialized their whole life, um, you know, that becomes a little concerning. They only played one position. They only played one sport their entire life. A lot of those guys are tapped out. So a guy like him that's done a lot of different things and brought a lot of different value in a lot of a lot of different areas. You know, those guys are exciting. Coach, you mentioned Sean Spencer earlier. He was your defensive line coach at Vanderbilt and then also at Penn State. Now, of course, comes to the New York Giants in his first year. His reputation precedes him. I know everybody out there has told me, and I've had contact with a lot of folks out in that area, they're they're so sorry to lose him, and it's going to be a big game for the Giants. It is interesting to me that he played safety when he was a clarion in college football, yet he is known as a defensive line specialist whose unit just gets after the quarterbacks, uh, the wild dogs, the whole Coach Chaos nickname. Why do you suppose that as a safety he became such a defensive line guru? Well, a couple of things. Sean's one of my best friends. I'm, I'm really you know, sad to lead to lose him, um, but I'm also really happy and excited for his family. You know, his wife's from New York. He's from Connecticut. Um, you know, this was this was a job that made sense to him, and he had other opportunities. He's had opportunities in the NFL the last couple of years and have turned them down. Sean's been with me, you know, since my first day as a head coach. He's been with me for nine years, so uh, we're going to miss him. Now, now I will tell you this: I played against Sean in college. For 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 you to think and for him to tell people he was a safety is not accurate. Um, he was a safety in the media guide, but but Sean was making tackles at the line of scrimmage. Play action killed Sean because he tried to make every tackle on the field. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he ever covered anybody, but he could hit. And uh, we played against each other in college and known each other for a long time. But you know, you, you look at you look at a lot of college coaches are, are coaching. Excuse me. You look a lot of NFL and college coaches. A lot of us are coaching positions we didn't play. Uh, there's a bunch of NFL coaches that that never played college football before. Um, and Sean's the guy that had an opportunity. He coached. He coached offense. He coached defense. He coached a bunch of different positions and had an opportunity at one point to start coaching D line and realized that he could make a heck of a career out of being one of the best D line coaches in the country. And has really embraced that and stuck with that, and uh, and, and been phenomenal. And, and Sean's a guy that understands, you know, schemes and techniques are critical. We get that, but it's also about morale. It's about relationships. It's about connecting with people. And you're gonna, you guys are gonna love Sean. He's fun to be around. Um, he's fun at practice. The guys are gonna love him. Um, and he just, you know, he, he enjoys himself. He doesn't take himself too serious. He's great in the community. You guys are really going to enjoy your time with, with Sean Spencer. He's a phenomenal human being, um, a, a great friend of mine. We're going to miss him, and I, I, I couldn't be more happy for him and his family. Now, he has the nickname Coach Chaos, so can you spill the beans? What's the backstory behind that, Coach? Well, he's a little bit of a psychopath in a positive way. Um, you know, he's just—he's—he's he's all over the place. He's—he's he's full of energy. Um, you know, his his mind is going in a thousand different directions. His body is as well. 
he coaches with passion, he coaches with enthusiasm, and, you know, this is something that, you know, I think someone said a long time ago, um, trained in the art of chaos, which is what he talks about all the time, and, and you know, it's just kind of stuck with him. And, uh, you know, same thing, he, he calls his players the wild dogs and shows them crazy, crazy videos of wild dogs in Africa hunting, hunting animals, and he just... He looks for as many different ways to motivate, and connect, and have fun with his players as anybody I've been around. Well, Coach, let me ask you this. It sounds as though uh, the intangible part of the game is as big to him, maybe, as the X's and O's and the techniques. Is that accurate? And how well do you think that'll translate to the National Football League, where obviously the conditions, given that they're professionals, are a little bit different? Yeah, it's it's a little bit different. There's there's no doubt about it. But I but I still think that's important. You know, you watch NFL players, you watch NFL coaches that have been successful. They they still have to have the passion and the enthusiasm for it. You know, when I was with the Green Bay Packers, I was amazed. You know, when I first got there, about Brett Favre, how much fun he had at practice every single day. And I remember saying to him, I said, Brett, you know, after all these years. You know, it's it's impressive to watch how much fun he goes. Coach, you can't play as long as I play without without having fun and, and enjoying it. And you know, I, I think to win at the highest level, yeah, the the talent is important, and the schemes are important, and the techniques and fundamentals are important as well. But but it's also about chemistry. It's also about relationships. Those things are are important. And I think sometimes coaches forget that, and Sean's someone that never has. It's it's. It's what our program at Penn State was about, about relationships and people. And Sean was a big part of that, you know, with our time at Vanderbilt and the SEC as well at Penn State. Well, and Coach, on the subject of the success of the program, before we let you go, when you look top to bottom on the Giants roster, you know, you're really putting your branches into this organization between Sean Spencer, between Cam Brown, and also Saquon Barkley and Grant Haley. There are a number of Penn State connections. What does that mean to you personally, the fact that all these guys are now going to be reunited again within the fabric of the Giants organization? Well, we take a lot of pride in it. You know, I've got so much respect for the Giants organization as a whole, their history, their traditions, a lot of similarities. In a lot of ways, when you talk about tradition and history of the Giants, as, as, you, as you do with Penn State, obviously being in the same region and footprint, I think, is important. But and we just couldn't be more proud. You know, I think, you know, you guys are going to love our guys, how they go about their business, how they carry themselves. I think, you know, I think you guys see that with Saquon. I mean, Saquon, everybody's everybody's talks about his talent and the plays he's able to make and his quads and all these things. But, but I think what you guys have realized is Saquon's a special guy, how he goes about his business, how he carries himself, how he represents the Giants and Penn State, his family, you know, and that, that's what we want to make sure that we're, we're, we're being a part of it. Cam Brown's going to do that as well. Grant Haley's doing that. And Sean Spencer's going to do that. So, you know, it's it's more than just the wins and losses for us. That's a huge part of it. and We don't underappreciate that. But it's also these other characteristics that we know are important uh, to Penn State. I know they're important to the Giants organization and that community as well. Coach Franklin, one more question about Saquon Barkley. You all, you all had such a great time watching him out there doing superhuman things. And again, as a person, you know what kind of man he is. We have found that out here with the Giants as well. But as you watched some of his clips or some of his games, I'm sure you had a chance to view some of them uh, in the last two years as he has just made his mark in the NFL. Is there anything that even surprised you a little bit that you said, hey, wow, I, I didn't know he had that in him at the NFL level? No. 
No, nothing surprises me with that guy. He's a mutant. I mean, the guy can do whatever he wants to do. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. Um, You know, he just continues to do great things. He actually was on our our team conference call. Uh, We have a team meeting on Wednesday, and he came on our team meeting and just, once again, did a phenomenal job. And we got a couple new staff members and a couple uh, freshman football players, and they were just blown away by him. Um, you know, he kept, you know, obviously continues to do a great job in those types of settings and talking about you know, the best programs he's been around, the best teams he's been around, the best, most successful individuals he's been around, what makes him special, what are, what are the common denominators. Uh, and he was awesome. You know, he's just, he continues to be someone that we're so proud of and, and always will be. And I think, I think Saquon's going to have a huge year for you guys this year. I was really happy watching the draft. I saw you guys pick up an offensive lineman and some guys. Uh, so, you know, that's going to help your quarterback. That's going to help Saquon. It's going to help the whole team and the whole organization. Absolutely. Andrew Thomas, the first-round pick for the Giants out of Georgia, certainly will hopefully build some holes for Saquon Barkley and company. He is the head football coach at Penn State, James Franklin, and one of his players, Cam Brown, now coming aboard to the Giants' sixth-round pick, 183rd overall. Coach, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Wish you the best of luck moving forward. Hope you and yours stay safe and healthy. Thanks so much for joining us. Once again, guys, appreciate it. Same to you guys. Have a great day. Thank you, Coach. Thanks again to Penn State head football coach James Franklin for joining us and discussing Cam Brown as well as the various Penn State connections currently on the Giants roster. And Paul, it's sort of a competition right now between Penn State and Georgia going toe-to-toe to see who has the most bragging rights with respect to the Giants roster and coaching staff top to bottom, it seems. Well, there's one thing for sure, Lance, and I think we can say this without equivocation. The Giants have really gone to the power schools to get a lot of their players these last couple of years. And, you know, that's not a coincidence. Uh, they clearly want guys who are as as high football acumen as they can possibly get their hands on. They're also going to power programs because these guys have played in significantly important games, big games, pressure games, spotlight games. They've won a lot of games, so they have a lot of winning in their blood. And then the other thing is, quite honestly, and we certainly see it with this year's coaching staff, there are so many ties to these power programs that you can use those pipelines to find out a lot about these kids before they come here. Well, and I think it's also good that there is that lengthy pipeline and even people that interacted with one another before they got to the NFL. Because case in point, you look at a guy like Cam Brown. The fact that this offseason is so unusual, Paul, but he already knows Saquon Barkley and Grant Haley. He could talk to Haley virtually. Haley could help him out in terms of the adjustment and what he went through because Haley was an undrafted player and made the jump to the NFL. And then to have Sean Spencer on the coaching staff, somebody that recruited him, when he first came to Penn State, I just think it's a nice pipeline, even within three or four individuals that have a smaller network in addition to the connections across the board on the team. Well, they can also share some things that have maybe not shown up on tape. I mean, for example, maybe Grant Haley can can tell Spencer some of the things that he saw that happened with this defense the last year or two that that maybe, maybe, for whatever reason, Spencer didn't pick up when he was looking at some of the old video. And maybe Haley can say, well, yeah, you know, Coach, 
some of the things that we were doing with some of these lining up uh, situations, uh, we did that because of this or because of that. Because remember, uh, you know, Sean Spencer doesn't have a DC or a head coach who was here last year to talk to to ask about that stuff. So I think it works both ways. No, I think that's a great point in terms of getting feedback from current players in terms of what they provide for the new coaching staff, and then also the new coaching staff having its own unique lens and making adjustments in which it implements the two new schemes that Jason Garrett and Patrick Graham are going to be running respectively. So we will get more into connections to the current rookie class as we recap some of the video conference calls that occurred on Wednesday. But before we do that, there is some news of note for the Giants. And late last night, the Giants announced that they are picking up the fifth-year options for two players, Evan Ingram as well as Jabril Peppers. Both of these players, the common trait here, Paul, is they were both 2017 first-round picks. So that means that both players received four-year deals and then the fifth-year option. So the fifth-year option now is being exercised, and that means that now Peppers and Ingram are both under contract through the 2021 season. So that means that they are not entering the final year of their contract with the Giants. They're going to be on board for at least two more years. And to me, Paul, this was really a no-brainer. First of all, when they acquired Peppers, one of the attractive pieces was he's still on a rookie contract, and we don't have the urgency to work out an extension because we can pick up the fifth-year option. And as far as the question marks with respect to Evan Ingram and people pointing to, well, he has battled numerous injuries, there's still so much upside. He's now going to be part of a new offense in which this offense highlights the tight ends, as we saw with Jason Witten and Blake Jarwin. Why would you not want to keep some security with Evan Ingram aboard? And it's also not putting a great deal of strain on your salary cap. Well, who would you like me to take first? I would leave it up to you. You are free to go in either <laughs> direction you would like, Paul. Well, let's start with the fact that both of these guys are still very, very young. Yep. And you would like to believe they both have upside. Peppers at 24, Ingram at 25. Last year, Jabril Peppers uh, suffered only two broken tackles in terms of miscues on defense. Uh, that's a solid number. He's a good tackler. He does hit guys. He does wrap up. He, he usually doesn't let guys get away. Uh, according to my unofficial stats, and I know some of the analytic services uh, sat him down for one touchdown pass allowed last year, I had him for zero. I did not have him giving up a touchdown pass. And we all know from watching the Giants a few years ago that the big play and the deep touchdown uh, can obviously be attributed to the safeties at times, can sometimes be attributed to the corners, but you like the fact that Peppers doesn't doesn't give up those kinds of passes. So I don't think there's any question when they acquired him in the Cleveland deal that they expected him to be here long term. We know he had the fractured back at the end of last season, missed a month. Uh, we believe he's on track. Uh, the Giants certainly believe that based on uh, the comments in terms of you know where they want to fit McKinney in. It does sound like he He's going to be in that mix next to Peppers, not necessarily replacing him. So absolutely, 1,000%, no-brainer, Jabril Peppers gets extended. That's fine. Pick up the option. Everett Ingram's an interesting choice because we have said, I think a lot of us have, maybe you didn't, Lance, but I think a lot of us on BBK said, you know what, because of his inability to stay healthy, uh, you could easily see the Giants make him play out this season 
force him into a situation where he's got to prove to them that he can play 16 games in a year for the first time in his career. He's yet to do that. 34 games so far in his first three NFL seasons. Now, having said that, we also should make clear he has been productive because over the past three seasons that he's been in the National Football League, He is sixth among NFL tight ends with over 1,700 receiving yards and seventh among NFL tight ends with 153 receptions. Average it out, it comes out to four and a half catches a game and 52 yards a game, which is also in the top 10, the yards per game in the top 10 among NFL tight ends over that time period. So the production has clearly been there when he's been on the field. My thought was that when you're talking about rolling the dice on extending a player with his fifth-year option, you really got to know he's going to be available. And coming off the foot surgery at the end of last season, I did not know if that was necessarily going to be a good bet. I thought they would probably allow him to play out this year, and if he proved that he could stay on the field and continue to play at a productive level, they would then sit down and talk to him and try to offer him some type of new deal. I think that Ingram wants to be here. He made it clear at the end of this past season that he's happy to be a Giant. He enjoys being a Giant. He wants to produce. He's got a lot of pride. Okay, He's very upset at the fact that his body has betrayed him for the first three yeah. years of his NFL career. And so he has big plans to try to make things what they should be. And and I don't necessarily know that if the Giants had put him into a prover-type situation that he would have taken offense to that. I think he understands that. And you know what? They picked up the option. Great. They have economic certainty now as they move forward with the tight end position, and I certainly hope it works out for them and him. Well, to your point, I don't think he would have been surprised. You're right, given his recent injury history, but... Paul, remember, there's also the rolling of the dice if you don't pick up the fifth-year option, and then all of a sudden he has an unbelievable year. Then he becomes an unrestricted free agent, and other teams could very well wow him with an offer. So this, to me, gives the Giants more security in the event that this coming season is pretty much a duplication of last year. Because what people forget, he only played eight games last year, but... Evan was on pace for a career year. Evan was unreal in the early stages of the season, Paul, before he got hurt. Mm -hmm. He was having one breakout game after another. He was a significant focal point of the offense. He and Daniel Jones did not miss a beat in Daniel's first start against Tampa Bay. If you remember, Evan had that monster touchdown run after the start of the second half, and that all of a sudden helped ignite the Giants' massive comeback. So... When you look at the numbers, but beyond the numbers, you look at the big plays he made in the early stages of last season, in an ideal world, if he would have stayed healthy, we would have been talking about Evan having a career year, and then it wouldn't have been any hesitation. You would have been like, the Giants are absolutely going to pick up the fifth-year option. I get it. It still gave them something to think about, but also, you also need to take into consideration, he stays healthy, he has a breakout year. You then run the risk of him becoming an unrestricted free agent and then losing him because a team that really needs a tight end who has financial flexibility is then going to blow him away with an offer. And we've seen that happen sometimes. So I think this gives the Giants some cushion, some protection in the event he does have that breakout year. And 
while we're not here on this program to get into the nuts and bolts with respect to the finances, from a salary cap perspective, Paul, it's not a significant hit in terms of the elevation in Evan's salary that I think it's going to put a great deal of strain on the Giants, regardless of what transpires in 2020 with respect to durability and how many games he ultimately ends up playing. Well, when you consider the numbers that I just gave you stats-wise while he has been available over his first three NFL seasons, uh, his contract is not only reasonable, it's very reasonable. 100%. Okay, so in that regard, you're absolutely right. They're they're not exactly putting uh, all of their chips into the middle of the table here and risking a fortune to bring him back. Uh, Jeff Eagle said the other day on a show when we had this conversation that he thought the Giants, because Dave Gettleman just said during the Combine this past year, that one of the things he's rethinking is the opportunity to talk to a player during the season and maybe wind up getting new deals. It has always been Gettleman's approach never to talk contract while the season was underway. And, and Dave admitted that, you know what, I think I'm going to rethink that now. Well, given that, Fiegels had said to me, what if you tell Evan Ingram, start the season, let's go. And let's say he plays the first 12 games of the year and he's not injured and he's producing well. Maybe that's the time you sit down and say, okay, listen, I know we got a month to go in the year, but we've seen enough. Let's get a deal done. Now, what those numbers would have turned out to be, I have no idea. At this point, it's only hypothetical. Of course, and remember, as we talk about this with respect to all players, every time free agency rolls along, it also takes two to tango, Paul, under that hypothetical that you threw out. So just because the team is showing some urgency in hammering out a deal in the middle of the year doesn't mean that the agent and the player feel the same way. They may say, hey, you know, let's see how this plays out and let's test the waters in free agency. Remember, you don't, yeah, you don't, you never know how the other side is going to react. But again, giving Ingram's attitude and the things that he has said about this team and his affection for being here, I suspect he would have been open to having that conversation, but you just don't know for sure. Well, but your point is well taken, or at least Jeff's point is well taken. I think one of the interesting things that Dave Gettleman had mentioned when he spoke on a few occasions in the offseason was that part of the way you think about the salary cap is you need to account for some money to have available to negotiate extensions with players currently on rookie deals. And he had thrown out the Jabril Peppers of the world, Evan Ingram of the world, Dalvin Tomlinson's name came up. So that at least is part of the mindset. And that's why I also don't think it's that surprising that the options were picked up for both of these players because if you're going to throw those names out in a public forum, Paul, that means you're at least entertaining the idea that those players warrant another contract. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I don't think anybody should be startled. But when you look at the finances, when you look at the upside of these players, and also the fact that assets were given up to acquire Jabril Peppers, similar to, once again, the Leonard Williams trade, when you give up assets for a player, there's certainly incentive to make sure that you maximize as much out of the players you can, especially when that player is on a rookie contract. Remember, Paul, one of the big conversations, the running theme that we have on this program is in today's league, the salary cap restraints make it so crucial to build your team through the draft because of the luxury of rookie deals. And not to get completely off topic, but I just want to bring up another team that I think is the poster child of 
how you go about your business the right way. Paul, if you look at the San Francisco 49ers, the Niners have drafted defensive linemen in the first round in five of the last six years, including this year when they just drafted Javon Kinlaw out of South Carolina, a teammate of TJ Brunson who we'll talk about in a few minutes here. The Niners traded DeForest Buckner, one of those defensive linemen they drafted in the first round over that year grouping that I just mentioned, to the Indianapolis Colts for a first-round pick. They then used that first-round pick, Paul, to draft Javon Kinlaw. So the reason why I'm bringing up that example is here's a mindset of the Niners saying, hey, a big staple of our team is the defensive line up front, getting after the quarterback, stopping the run. But we can't keep everybody, right? It's impossible to give massive contracts to every single one of those players. That's the challenge that every team faces. So they give a contract to Eric Armstead this offseason, one of those five defensive linemen. They decide, okay, DeForest Buckner has value, we'll trade him. We'll get a first-round pick back, and what do they say? The first-round pick, if the value's right, will bring in his replacement. And now we have Kinlaw on a rookie deal. We paid Armstead, and oh, by the way, Paul, we also still have Nick Bosa on a rookie deal. And my point is, they're not just thinking about 2020. They're thinking about the longevity of the team to say, how do we balance the books, and how do we make sure that our talent level, our depth chart remains consistent? That, to me, is an example of how every team should be thinking logistically. Hence why Plan B free agency way back when in the early 90s was the best way for this league to go because you would not be putting teams into this scrunch that they're in to have to make those kinds of decisions. Well, that's where you and I disagree. See, I like the current setup because I think it really puts GMs up against the wall. They've got to show their true colors. It penalizes them, It penalizes them. You penalize GMs who have consistently drafted well and coaching staffs who coach guys up because then before you know it, that guy is looking at greener pastures because that player wants to make more money somewhere else looking to make a big killing instead of staying home and providing the fruits of his labor and your labor for your team. It is, it is so backwards, it's not even funny, well, but I, it is what it is. I know where you're going with that, and you're right. It, it does then say to a general manager, hey, five out of the six years, you drafted great defensive linemen, but it's going to be difficult to keep all of them. However, let's go back to my Niners example. If the Niners have drafted so well, and it's a reflection of the general manager, Paul, then that means that the GM should be confident he could find the replacement for the guys he loses, such as the Niners drafting Javon Kinlaw, who clearly was one of the top prospects in this year's draft, to replace DeForest Buckner. So if you're a GM and you draft well, I think you'd have confidence that if you do lose a player or two, you're still going to be okay. Okay, but that's only half of the equation because now, no matter how well you draft over the next three, four, five, six years, you're also relying upon the coaching staff to bring out the best in that player. There are too many variables involved. There are. It's not strictly on the GM making the right picks. You have to worry about guys staying healthy. You've got to worry about prospects fulfilling their potential. You have to worry about assistant coaches and head coaches getting the most out of the guys that you drafted so that your projections match the reality. There are too many variables involved. Look, Plan B was struck down by the courts. They decided that it was antitrust, and they went for full-blown free agency. So the legalities here made that system obsolete. I just think it stinks, but hey, it's it's how many decades now we've lived through it. There's nothing I can do to change it. The, le- the legalities are the legalities, and we are stuck with this system, which does eat at the fabric of every NFL team. 
Well, I think at least everybody's on an even playing field, though. That is true. They away at the fabric, to your point. In that your is opinion, true. But everybody's on an even playing field. No team has an advantage over the other because they're all up against the salary cap. That, that, that is very true. And to your point about Davlin Tomlinson before, you know, he was not a first-round pick. And so even though he was part of that same 2017 draft class, the Giants have no such ability to slam an extra year's option onto him. They are simply going to have to negotiate to him when it, with him when it's time. Yeah, that is important to note, the difference between the first-round picks versus the picks that come a little bit later on. Well, speaking of rookies, let's now transition to the video conference calls that took place on Wednesday. They had three on Tuesday. Jeff and I recapped that yesterday, so now let's move forward a day later. We heard from TJ Brunson. We heard from Chris Williamson. We heard from Tate Crowder. So we heard from three of the four seventh-round picks. I want to start with Brunson, and he discussed how he was utilized Paul at South Carolina. Now, granted, we just spoke to Will Muschamp on a program earlier this week, and Muschamp gave us some really great background information. And for those of you who may miss that, that was Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We advise you to go back and listen to that. Some great insight that these coaches are providing for us, just as James Franklin did earlier in the show. But this is what jumped out to me about what Brunson had to say. First of all, he said that he started off on special teams at South Carolina, so he's more than confident jumping back into that mix. And he said that... At South Carolina, when you played on special teams, it was a way for the coaching staff to evaluate and see who was ready to take the next step, who they could trust. So he clearly has that mindset that he is going to put his head down and get to work on special teams in order to make a name for himself. The other thing he brought up was he played Mike, he played Will, and then he also said, interestingly, Paul, that he was asked to do a little single high safety mm-hmm. and middle field safety. So here's another example of a player that was moved around, and as Will Muschamp told us, a very complex system that certainly challenges guys on every front. Well, to your point, and you're talking about challenging and going through a complex system, I thought it was very interesting when Brunson was asked about the um, the problems that rookies are going to have acclimating to the NFL game when they're forced to use virtual learning. And right to that point, and this speaks to his football acumen and his attitude and his mentality, he said that in his mind, virtual rookies still are going to be expected to hit the ground running when they come in. And so you have to pick up everything that you can through virtual learning so that when you report, you are not going to be behind the eight ball. Because in his mind, rookies don't deserve any slack. When you get here, you're supposed to be ready. And that's the kind of mentality you want to hear out of a guy like this. Brunson, the linebacker out of South Carolina, on that very subject, this to me also was a great point that Chris Williamson the defensive back out of Minnesota brought up about the remote learning. And I want to read a direct quote because this really jumped out to me. That's why I wrote it down. This is what he thought in terms of the pros versus cons of not being at the team facility and maybe adding more of a challenge for a rookie specifically. He said, quote, we'll be able to expand our mental part of the game and come in and maybe be more ready than just being thrown into the fire of things. We've had time to talk it over with coaches and stuff like that. I don't think it puts us at a disadvantage. It might be an advantage, honestly, end quote. I thought that was a very interesting point, which relates to what you just brought up that Brunson said. Williamson's looking at it where he actually thinks this remote learning is going to really test the young guys from a mental standpoint 
in terms of their concentration, remaining engaged, and also really learning the X's and O's that he actually thinks they'll be mentally stronger once they actually can return to the field and at the facility. Well, to paraphrase something of what he said, and it's very similar, I may have been in the same question and answer that you just quoted, my paraphrasing of him was that he believes guys who are successful in the NFL find their foundation in the mental aspect of the game. Yeah. And because of that, he thinks that the virtual learning is going to build stronger concrete for these guys when they actually get out onto the field. So you're right. He's not looking at it as a disadvantage and sitting there saying, woe is me, I can't get out onto the field. He's saying to himself, wait a minute, I have a chance to enhance a tool that's going to make me even better when I get out there. Boy, let me sink my teeth into this and let me use it to my benefit as much as I can. It's fascinating to me the connections that this rookie class has to the current roster. And I'm not just talking about the schools. We talked about Penn State with James Franklin, Georgia clearly across the board. But when Carter Coughlin spoke to the media the other day, he had mentioned, interestingly, and Jeff and I talked about this, he and linebacker Ryan Connolly were teammates at Eden Prairie High School. Coughlin was a typical defensive lineman linebacker, which he continued to play at Minnesota. Connolly was surprisingly a quarterback who he said had a cannon of an arm. So that's a fascinating connection. And then you hear another Minnesota player that they drafted, Paul, Chris Williamson. He grew up in Georgia playing football against Darius Slayton. And that rivalry goes back to when they were nine-year-olds competing in a local football league in Georgia. It's amazing to me. You think the football world is so vast because you think about high school, college football, NFL. There's so many players. There's so many coaches. It gets smaller and smaller the more and more you connect the dots. And I just think it's remarkable that we've got two players that the Giants drafted out of Minnesota, both of them have ties to the current Giants roster. Well, what boggles my mind, Lance, and every year they come out with this stat and they say, what is it, some small, tiny percentage of players who are either in the NCAAs or playing at the high school level will ever see an NFL training camp. The the number is like microscopic. Yeah. And yet, look at this connection we have (laughs) for guys who are nine years old uh, playing, you know, uh, youth ball on the same field. It, it's, it boggles the mind that this would have actually happened, but indeed it did. And not only that, uh, you know, they both make it to the NFL, but, but they're both on the same team. Exactly. The, the, the odds are ridiculously <laughs> small. Insane. Minute. Minute may not even put it in justice terms. Here was the other interesting takeaway from what Williamson said to the media He's worked very closely with former NFL cornerback Ray Buchanan. And Buchanan, who we're actually hoping to have on the program shortly, he convinced Williamson to move from wide receiver to defensive back because Williamson was a wide receiver and he didn't move to defensive back, Paul, until he was a senior in high school. So when you think about this, still a very small sample size in which Chris Williamson has been in the secondary. He's been in the secondary in terms of senior year of high school and then his collegiate career, which was split between Florida and Minnesota. But you just wonder and you play the coulda, woulda, shoulda game a lot with respect to the path of a player. He doesn't meet Ray Buchanan. He doesn't run into Ray Buchanan. Buchanan doesn't convince him because one of the things he said was Buchanan told him, you could be an okay wide receiver, 
Or you could be a very unique defensive back who has the size and speed that makes you stand out. And that registered in the mind of Chris Williamson, and that made him change positions. My point is, he doesn't have that conversation. I don't know if we're talking about Chris Williamson right now, drafted by the New York Giants or on any NFL team, if he's still playing wide receiver. Well, if he is still playing receiver, maybe he's drafted and competing against Slayton for a job. That's true. That could be another way to look at it. Absolutely. (laughs) But, hey, I tell you what, you're talking about a guy who is just about six feet tall. And, you know, I think that most people would look at him and say, "Uh, pretty good size for a corner. I think he goes about 200 pounds. So I think that Buchanan certainly had something there. And and if he can continue to develop those skills, there's no reason why he can't compete. As you said, only having a short time at corner, he certainly has a lot to learn. But I think the other interesting part to that is he was not the only guy who changed positions. Remember, Tay Crowder, who comes out of Georgia as a linebacker, uh, originally got to the Bulldogs as a running back. I mean, this happens a lot of times when guys are coming out of high school and get to college. Usually, once they get to college, more often than not, they kind of hone in on where they're going to be. Either, you know, you're an interior offensive lineman or you're an edge rusher or you're, you know, I guess the one that probably changes the most may be safety and corner. But it's not as often that a guy will wind up totally going to the other side of the football. 100%. And if you remember, it was funny that Crowder brought that up, and that brings us to the third and final video conference call from Wednesday. When we spoke to Sam Pittman, Paul, Arkansas's head coach, who was the Georgia offensive line coach, assistant head coach, we had him on to talk about Andrew Thomas, who we clearly worked very closely. At the very end, I had asked him about Tay Crowder and his impressions of Crowder because he clearly had been on the coaching staff. And the first thing he said to us was, isn't it a remarkable story? Crowder was recruited and came in as a running back, and we changed him to linebacker. And what I found extremely comical, when he further expounded upon that with the media, he was talking about how he went up against Andrew Thomas in practice a few times as a linebacker, and he said, quote, Andrew Thomas was a pretty good player, end quote. Okay, but then, then, yeah, that may be putting it one way. Then the other thing that I really chuckled about was there was a follow-up question. Well, you worked with Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle because, remember, he came in with that group who are now in the NFL, and somebody raised the question, well, technically, instead of going up against Andrew Thomas, you actually could have ran behind him if you would have stuck it out as a running back. And he said, yeah, I think I'd rather run behind Andrew Thomas than go up against him in practice. <laughs> so Good answer. Really saw it. Yes, correct. That was a, a very smart answer on his part because he, he saw it from various different angles. The other thing, of course, is Crowder has connections with Lorenzo Carter and DeAndre Baker. They were teammates. So here's another example, Paul, similar to Cam Brown, who can talk to Saquon and Grant Haley and Sean Spencer. Crowder has already been in contact with Carter and Baker, he said, and that's going to help him immensely because those are two guys he's going to have to learn this new defense with. Yeah, there's no doubt that he will pick their brains and try to figure out what it is to be a pro and what it is to be a giant, although, of course, the coaching staff has changed, the coordinator has changed, the playbook is going to change. So Baker and Carter themselves are going to be like fish out of water in terms of the playbook, but they do at least understand what it is to be a pro and what it is to be a giant, and those kinds of things will certainly help Crowder get acclimated. The one thing that we do know for sure, and we were certainly able to glean this from Coach Pittman uh, when he talked about how eager and how excited and energetic 
that that Crowder was, you know, it was it was really very easy to see he had affection for the player, even though he was not his position coach. He was impressed with his attitude and his mentality, and of course his willingness to flip to the other side of the ball because they had seen that on scout team it looked like he had a lot of energy and was bringing something to the linebacker core, and so they decided to flip him, and it worked out well. Uh, you like when coaches see something special in a player that makes them want to get creative enough to get them on the field more often. They see the hunger in the player. They see the athleticism in the player. And it's important that a coach sees that because this gets back to the whole debate even with the Giants and every other NFL team, Paul. Every coaching staff will tell you the goal at the end of the day is to maximize the roster. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you want to have your starters solidified. But if you could find ways for a special teamer to contribute on offense or defense here or there and carve out a role for that player, hey, more power to you. So that's an example of the Georgia coaching staff maximizing its roster. Hey, we could leave Crowder as a running back. He could sit behind Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle and barely see the field. Or we can find ways to put him out there on defense and him to have more of a significant impact. And that's exactly what their mindset was. And let me make something clear to some of the folks who may be talking to themselves and saying, hey, why are you talking about, you know, sixth and seventh round draft picks in this kind of way? I'll tell you why. Because even if these guys are in starters, or even if they wind up becoming practice squad players, there is great value in having guys who are smart, who are athletic, and who hustle. Because when you have them out on the practice field on a day-to-day basis, the coaches want their starters to be pushed. They want their starters to have to work harder. That's how they get better. So it actually does make a difference as to the quality of backups you have, not necessarily just on game day, but at practice. And the quality of your practice squad players does make a difference. I think that's a great point. And the other thing as to why we are focusing on a lot of these late-round picks is because your special teams unit is mainly composed of these players. Your starters don't play special teams It's not that they don't play it at all. It's just that you're certainly not giving them the bulk of the reps because you want to preserve them on offense and defense. So you have a guy like Carter Coughlin, and he embraces special teams. You love that attitude because in all likelihood, you're going to try to put him on perhaps all four teams or at least three or two of the four teams. So that's another reason why I think we're focusing on this. And to me, I find it important when I hear that a lot of these players, when they're asked, hey, what's your special team's experience, without hesitation – I contributed. That's how I started out in college. I played there my first two years. I played on all four teams. I embraced that opportunity, and I'm certainly looking forward to tapping into it again in my rookie year in the NFL. You want to hear that, because if you don't hear that, then that's going to be a further adjustment period and more of a challenge for these guys to even simply try to make the team. You know, Lance, another reason that these lower picks are so important, and I had a lot of people get to me on Twitter saying the Giants have four seven-round picks, you know, seventh-rounders. What exactly is that going to do for the team? How much are those guys worth? They're just throwaways. Well, here's the other reason that they're not, and it goes down to the business side of the game. Those seventh-round picks are much more economically friendly if you're going to need them on your team, either if they're getting promoted from the practice squad or they make your team as a backup. Because if you get somebody injured, right, 
And you've got to go out into the free agent market at some point during the season. And now you have to sign a veteran because you don't have somebody already in your system that you can have some faith in. You're going to spend more money because of the minimum contract requirements to pick up a veteran off the streets. So there's an economic value to these guys in the lower levels of the draft if they can provide anything at all to help your team. It's not just about football. It's also about business. Well, it goes back to what you and I talked about. You have to build a team in this day and age through the draft because of the luxury of rookie contracts. There's no doubt about that. One last point I wanted to bring up in terms of a common theme with respect to the conference calls and the connections to the current roster before we answer some of your submitted questions to wrap up the show. The reason why the connections to me on the roster are key As you know, Paul, the New York, New Jersey area is a different animal. I'm not talking about playing football, okay? I'm not bringing up the media, the pressures. Forget that. I'm tired of hearing that. It gets old. I'm talking about lifestyle. When you grew up in a small town for a lot of these players and they're not used to the big city and a different environment, that takes some adjusting. So when a player like Chris Williamson and Carter Coughlin can live together, can room together, as they go through their first year of college, and they even talked about that during the conference call, having a familiar person with you who you just spent the last few years of college together, I think that helps the transition. If Tay Crowder knows that he can turn to Lorenzo Carter and DeAndre Baker in a pinch because they went through life as rookies transitioning to the New York, New Jersey area, that I think helps. It's more of a mental thing. We tend to forget about that. I don't want to get too psychological or scientific on this show, okay? We try to keep it light. We try to keep it focused on football. But especially in this day and age, Paul, what everybody's going through, I think we can all relate. Uncharted territory. People are quarantined in their own homes. I think it helps, especially in this environment, this year specifically, if you have somebody you already know on the roster when you're making a huge transition, not just in your career, but in your life. That's why I think those connections are helpful. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that one bit at all. We've been discussing this now for not only weeks, probably months, uh, even back at the Combine in Indianapolis. We were looking at some of the guys on the Giants staff and already targeting, well, who are some of the folks who are going to be coming out in this draft who these guys are going to have research on? And, I mean, look, I don't think it was ever more apparent than when we talked to Coach Pittman from Arkansas, who, as you mentioned, had been the offensive line coach at Georgia. And he started talking about all of the connections, not just one or two, but multiple connections he had to the Giants staff and how he also admitted he had had conversations with all of them. And he pretty much told us he knew the Giants were picking Thomas at number four. These pipelines are invaluable, and you would be foolish as an NFL organization not to take advantage of them. And Sam Pittman, of course, connected to Derek Dooley as well as Brett Bielema, two assistants currently on the Giants staff because he worked under them when they were college head coaches at Tennessee and Arkansas, respectively. And that was brought up on that interview that you can go back and listen to a day ago here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. All right, before we wrap up the program, we're not taking phone calls, but we want to keep the interaction going with you, the listeners, you, the fans. We're certainly very appreciative of you tuning in on a daily basis as well as staying on top of the Giants news. So 
You can continue to submit your questions at Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions or hashtag Giants chat. Or, of course, you can interact directly with the two of us on Twitter at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. All right, Paul, let's answer two questions that were submitted draft-related or at least off-season structure-related, one of which I found very interesting. We'll start with Peggy's question. She says, the Giants' defense was ranked 29th in 2019. I can't believe our first pick was an offensive tackle. I realize we picked up a few defensive free agents, but don't you think we should have drafted a possible defensive game changer such as Isaiah Simmons? I'm disappointed with our decision. Well, if you had asked me that question about a month ago or any time in the previous month or two before that, I would have been totally on board with you. But again, various elements uh, came to light as we were getting closer and closer to the draft, and it simply made the most sense to me, based on what we were projecting the Giants' game plan to be, that uh, they were going to go offensive tackle and that Andrew Thomas made the most sense to me, and that's why I came out and said it. I would say this. After the draft concluded and after we see what the Giants have signed in the rookie free agent pool, It is also even more clear, if you will, that the Giants did what fits their blueprint the best. They were not going to be in a position to draft an Andrew Thomas-type player had they taken Isaiah Simmons at four. It was just not going to happen. And furthermore, they have decided clearly to fortify the back seven of their defense and not take, not take a pass rusher in this draft. Now, again, how did you see Isaiah Simmons projecting into the NFL? I saw him more as a linebacker. Some other people saw him more as a safety. I think he would have been an outstanding 4-3 outside linebacker. That may have been the best way to use him coming into this league. In my opinion, based on what the Giants have shown us by their personnel moves, they're not going to play much of that, if any of it. They're simply going to flood the defense with guys in the back seven. And given that, I totally understand now. It's crystal clear. If it wasn't before, it's crystal clear now. Simmons was not going to max out, therefore not the best fit for this defense. There's no question Simmons is a unique and dynamic player, okay? That is clearly stated and also obvious when you put on the film. But I think you also need to ask yourself, Would Simmons have a bigger impact on the Giants' team versus perhaps what the Giants accomplished with their offensive line additions? And I'm not just talking about 2020. I'm talking about years down the road. And as you pointed out, Paul, you have to then evaluate this question when you look at the draft class as a whole. And what I mean by that, when it's all said and done, if the Giants walk away with the two future bookends of their offensive line, Andrew Thomas and Matt Paird, And those two guys are with the franchise for years, not two years, not three years. We're talking about second contracts, and they provide stability for the offensive line. Then to me, it's not even a question about why you didn't go the defensive route with Isaiah Simmons, because I think you're looking at more of the long-term plan and how it's important to also protect the two assets known as Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. And as Dave Gettleman has stated, as Patrick Graham has alluded to, this defense is not going to be fixed by one individual alone. This defense is going to be productive based on scheme. 
based on group effort. There is no 15-sack guy on this roster. There's no 20-sack guy on this roster. Kyler Fackrell is the only player who has had a single-season double-digit sack year. That's it. And he did that only once in his career. So even if you bring Simmons into the mix, Simmons is not a 10-sack guy. Simmons is certainly a sack guy, but Simmons is a fill-the-stat-sheet-up guy. He's not just a pressure guy. He's going to help you in coverage. You can move him around if you choose to do. So I, once again, go back to the question. Even if you take Isaiah Simmons, who is an extremely talented player, does he in the long run have more of an impact on your team than the potential that you could potentially get out of Andrew Thomas and Matt Paird for years to come? And my answer would be, I think the two bookends on the offensive line, if that pans out, Paul, has a much more significant impact on the longevity of the Giants than Isaiah Simmons alone would have. I would agree with that. There's only one thing you said that I would disagree with, and that is that's not just about long-term because Thomas is expected to start, I think, this year by most people. And quite frankly, Parrott and Thomas might both wind up starting as soon as 2021. So they're not just long-term guys. They're also short-term guys. 100%. But once again, Nate Solder's on the roster right now. So, you know, it's speculation as to whether or not you're going to eliminate him from the equation. Right now, I'm operating that Solder's on the roster. I still think he's in the mix of one of the starting tackle spots. So I don't know the likelihood of getting both of those guys in starting spots. I think Matt Parrott could very well have a role as a swing tackle. I wouldn't eliminate that. But I think with Solder still on the roster, at least in the short term, he appears to be in their plan. So that's why I'm also looking at the picks for the long term, too. And that's what Dave Gettleman is thinking, too, because it goes back to my example with the Niners that I'm going to rehash that I brought up earlier. San Francisco was not making those decisions, Paul, based on what was going to be good for them in 18 or 19 or 20. Totally different, Lance. Totally different. Well, how so? Because the Niners have already built a very strong defensive line. The Giants' offensive line, as it stands now, is not the strength of the team. So it's a totally different environment. You're talking about a, a unit that is already a powerhouse, and they're just trying to make sure that it stays at that level. With the Giants' offensive line, not only do you want it to be really good long term, but you're also trying to improve it in the short term, which is why you're getting your dates mixed up a little bit. I didn't say that Parrott is going to be in there now. What I said is that it's possible Thomas and Parrott will be starting bookend tackles in 2021, and that is short term. Next next year, not this year, but next year is short term. It's entirely possible they're both starters next year. And if you don't think that, then then I don't think you're opening your eyes. No, I didn't say that. That's crazy. I, I never said that. I, I all I'm operating under is 2020 right now. Okay, but, and in 20, I think we believe that Thomas is probably going to be a starter at right tackle. Correct. And I, I don't think that's crazy. So, so Thomas, that's but, immediate help. Yeah, it's immediate help, but also it's it's immediate help and long term help. The yes. vision, if you ask Dave yes. Gettleman, the yes. vision is still that down the road. You have Thomas at Paris. No doubt. No doubt. So it's still a combination a, of both. Right. Well, no matter it, how it plays out. Exactly. Well, that's the point, though, that it is actually a fortification of what you currently have in addition to long term. With the 49ers, they've already got, if not the best, one of the best three defensive lines in football. They're not looking to improve it any time in the next 12 months. They already have one of the best. So it's a totally different scenario. Well, but the reason why they have one of the best is not just because of the starters. It's the depth. And you could also argue that with what the Giants did in this year's draft with respect to the offensive line, it wasn't just improving the starters. It was also giving themselves more options and flexibility on the depth front in terms of Shane Lemieux, Matt Paert, 
the competition with some of the veterans they brought in. You know, in years prior, we weren't talking about maybe having three to four options <laughs> fighting for jobs the problem, as the rotational lineman. The too. problem was finding the starting five. Of course. Well, but, but that's what the draft is about, too. Remember, it goes back to the question with Simmons. It's about not just one player coming in. It's about what you got out of the entire draft because, as you pointed out, it becomes a domino effect. You don't take Andrew Thomas in the first round. Okay, then you've got to maybe address it in the second round. So maybe you don't take McKinney then in the second round. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you don't take Matt Parrott in the third round because he goes elsewhere. The point is you can't operate under the logic of you take Simmons with the fourth overall pick, Paul, and then the other players who you wound up taking are there to still help you on the offensive line. That, to me, is a big part of that equation as well. Well, if you reverse it, let's say they, just for argument's sake, and this is really stupid, but we'll do the hypothetical anyway. If they take Simmons at four, and then they take someone maybe like uh, Cleveland, the offensive tackle, uh, in the second round. So reverse the defensive player and the offensive tackle in terms of what the Giants did, you could probably still wind up taking Parrott in the third round out of UConn. So instead of having uh, Thomas and Parrott, you probably would have Cleveland and Parrott, and then you would have Simmons. Are you better off with that three with that three or that trio, or are you better off with the trio that they currently have? I think we would both agree the trio they currently have makes, makes them a winner. Well, Thomas was a higher-rated prospect. And in terms of the competition he went up against at Georgia, much different than what Cleveland was tested in in terms of at Boise State. So that alone, I think, separates the two. And here's the other thing that is related to this question. McKinney has a great deal of flexibility. I certainly would not compare him to Simmons. I think the body weight, the physique is much different. Well, but he's more of a safety than he yeah. is a linebacker, but he fits the Giants' scheme better. And Gettleman stressed that to us last week. When he talked about the versatility of players, he said you have to find out the guy who's the best fit for the New York Giants. McKinney's actually a better fit than Simmons because he's going to play more deeper more more deep secondary than he is linebacker. And the point is, he has also versatility that he brings to the table. It's all about how they utilize him. All right, let's finish up with our last question. Adam asks the following. Would the five or six dead weeks that we typically endure between the end of minicamp in June and the start of training camp in July be available this year for OTAs, minicamp, etc.? Or are they tied to the CBA in some way and thus are off limits? Well, I'll jump on this first, Paul, and I'll let you expand. Bottom line is the CBA is very strict in terms of its language. And also that was negotiated from both ends with respect to the owners and the players because the players, based on the CBA, are guaranteed a specific amount of weeks off based yeah. on the calendar. And here's the thing. While they're not at the team facility, remember, they negotiated that they're going to have a remote virtual OTA minicamp period. So minicamp and OTAs are occurring. They're just not occurring on the field. So to get back to Adam's question... It's really going on, even though you don't feel as if it's going on. So they're still going to have to grant those players those five or six dead week period because the players would argue, well, Paul, we weren't sitting at home doing nothing. We were working out our own own in terms of the strength and conditioning coaches guiding us, and we were sitting through Zoom meetings and conferences with our coaches. So you didn't eliminate the OTAs in minicamp. You're just having it during a different format. That's all. I think I can simplify this even a little bit more, Lance. To be honest with you, whenever the medical folks and the government folks say it's going to be okay for the NFL to proceed, they're going to proceed. And whatever those conditions are, 
the Players Association and the team owners are going to have to be on the same page within milliseconds because if they bicker and they start going back and forth about, well, under what conditions are we going to be able to play? Uh, There's too much of this, too much of that. We need time off. We don't need – no, no. If there's any of that stuff going on, then they're never going to get any games played in the 2020 season. So these two parties better be on the same page that, hey, if we're going to play, we're going to play. Guys, this is how it's going to happen. Done. Close the book, kick it off, and play. The more time you waste in negotiating and bickering about conditions, the less time you're going to have to try to get a season underway. 100%. Plus, just last point here, the players would also never agree to going from OTA's mini camp and then straight into training camp, Paul, with no time off. Because then that's what would happen. You would have that dead period between June and July, OTA's and mini camp, and then all of a sudden training camp would get going end of July, early August. Assuming, of course, the medical experts approve that people can get back on the field. And once again, in a CBA structured by the negotiating table, and labor unions, they would never agree to that format. I can guarantee you that. All right, well, they, they, yeah. all I'm telling you is, Lance, they better agree to anything that's put forth on the table because if they want to play, and it's better for everybody if they play once the clearance is given, <laughs> there should not be any argument. There should not be any hesitation. You better just bite the bullet and get on the field. 100%. But I think that if they do get clearance, it would more likely go straight to training camp than it would be trying to duplicate and redo other facets. of. Oh, yes. I agree That's with that part of it. I agree yeah. with that. Okay. So that is going to wrap up today's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody tuning in. Thanks again to Penn State head coach James Franklin for joining us earlier in the program to discuss the Giants' sixth-round pick Cam Brown. We'll have a fresh episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live coming your way on Friday as we continue to recap the draft class and also continue to hear from special guests that will continue to break down key members of the 2020 class. Paul, always enjoy the conversation. Look forward to doing it again in the future. You got it, Lance. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest news and notes regarding the team. We will speak to you on Friday. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Have a good one.